Hello and welcome to The Books That Made Me, a podcast about the books that hold a special significance to my guests, whether because it brings up special memories, resonated with them, or simply brought joy to their lives. I hope you will learn more about my guests and be inspired by their stories. So curl up with us and let's dive in. Today I have uh, a very special guest. Her name is Christy and um, she is the, I guess, the owner and the boss of um, House of Rouché, is that correct? Uh, Rouché. Oh, Rouché. Okay, so where did that come from, that name? Um, it's my husband's family's name. Um, it actually is, it was originally Rauschenberger, so it has some German and European history in it, but it was changed to Rouché when they came over here. Okay, and then why did you decide to call it House of Rouché? Um, about four years ago, I left my career as a manufacturing engineer and became a stay-at-home mom. And I decided to start drawing as a form of therapy and way to process all those feelings. And I decided to call it the House of Roushi because I wanted it to feel as though you were sitting at my kitchen table having a cup of coffee or tea with me. And we were chatting about life and just sharing the heart work behind my artwork. Okay, that's great. Um, so you said, so I read on your bio that you were an engineer, like you just said, mm-hmm. um, and you kind of self-taught yourself, you self-taught yourself to draw. Yes. Um, but then it's, they're quite opposites, I felt like. So like engineering is quite rigid, quite mathematical, quite scientific, mm-hmm. whereas art is quite you know, free and uh, creative and um, kind of liberal in how you can express yourself. So how, I mean, did you feel like you were very, there were two very different lives you were living. Hmm. Yes and no. Um, my dad was an engineer, and so he always brought that aspect into our life. And my mom has always been a creative, very thrifty and frugal and looking at ways to create with what we had. Um, so I feel like my parents kind of instilled that type of balance in my life growing up. Um, so that when I was an engineer as an adult, my outlet has always been creating. So I kind of have used them to balance each other out. So I would come home and I would, um, you know, redo some piece of artwork or a a bookshelf for a room. And that would be my like creative outlet in a way to express myself and also a way to, you know, make meaningful artwork and um, thrifty pieces of furniture for our home um, rather than just go out and buy something new. So how does that kind of relate to your artwork? Because in some ways you're creating something new, Mm -hmm. right, for people to purchase and things like that. But how does, I guess, how does it relate to your, the artwork that you create, how does it relate to that kind of thrifty side of you? Um, So I feel like, Right now, it all started when I was, because I left my job and being the primary breadwinner, I needed to look for ways to be um, more efficient and thrifty. And so as I was creating, I realized that I didn't have to purchase artwork from, you know, big box stores or even, um, you know, anywhere on the internet that I could just make artwork that was specific and meaningful for me so it all started around the phrase you are enough and again that transition from being a working mom to a stay-at-home mom I really was struggling with what my identity was and what my role was and I really just found my way back to this phrase you are enough and that kind of ties into how affirmations are important to be surrounded by words that encourage and uplift and I think that's where my business comes in is I created artwork to surround myself with words that would encourage and uplift me and I've created affordable and approachable artwork for other people to keep in their homes and surround themselves with um, to encourage and uplift. So the the phrase that you said you are enough and and started with that where did you hear that phrase I mean because I've seen the book that I'm enough Mm -hmm. it's like a children's book Um, did it come from that or did it come from somewhere else? You know, I'm not exactly sure where the phrase came from. It's one of those things where I just felt like it was affirming me. Like I just needed to hear it. 
a lot of my art process is listening to music and writing out song lyrics was a lot of what my practice was like um, in those early days. So I would just listen to music from church or music that inspired me and just started practicing my lettering style by writing the lyrics. And at some point you are enough was just like a really loud resounding phrase in my head over and over again. Um, And I just would keep writing it down. That was literally how I started every session. If I didn't start with you are enough at some point within my practice, um, you are enough would be written on my page and tears are flowing and I'm singing to music and it was just like affirming to me that, you know, what I am, my life may not be what I had planned it to be, but that's okay. I am enough how I am right here in this moment, no matter how scary or how uncertain it may feel, that's okay. And it was really reassuring to me to write that, to see it, to hear it, to read it. Um, and so I make sure I keep it you know, in our hallway posted um, just so that I can always see it as well. That's great. I mean, I, I, for recently, I think I've, I've started to kind of look into affirmations because I feel like during times of kind of when you don't really know what's happening, mm-hmm. you need those kind of ground you to make you feel like there is something to go forward to this. There is some kind of hope to go t- towards. Do you find a lot of your affirmations? I mean, you said that you listen to music and that's where you find a lot of the lyrics that you kind of write. Um, but do you find a lot of affirmations in your, in books that you read? Um, some of them. Yeah. Some of the, my journey from the, well, this last four years, a lot of my journey has been an understanding who I am and unlearning a lot of the preconceived notions, you know, society has these standards that we're expected to uphold and just being like, why, why do we do it this way? And just giving myself the ability to question a lot. And I think someone that um, really helped me unlock that was Brene Brown. Um, Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of her books. I loved, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, but um, when, as I, was leaving there was a lot of the shame of like I had planned to be an engineer I had planned to be you know in management and CEO and things like this my plans were big and I felt like I had failed by shifting my plans and not saying that staying at home was a failure but because I hadn't moved forward with my plan I felt like I'd failed and so reading her books um, really affirmed that you know, shame, I needed to let go of that shame, that I was the only one holding myself back, that plans can shift, I can change courses, I can pivot. And it was really empowering to read, specifically, Rising Strong was one of the first ones I read of Brene Brown's books. So if you're happy to start with Brene Brown, because I know you sent me a list of Mm. books that you talk about but we can go in any order if you're happy with that okay yeah um so with with Brené Brown I've never really heard about her until um I came to the states and I remember watching like a Netflix I think it was like a special that she had um and I didn't really know much about her so I was just kind of watching her and I was like oh okay um so for me I don't really know much about her so what could say for somebody that doesn't know what could you say about her okay um Brene Brown is some, I believe she would classify herself as like a sociologist and a researcher, a shame, specifically a shame researcher. And so she does a lot of work on the science part about studying people's behavior specifically around, you know, the element of shame. So for me as an engineer, I love the fact that she had the facts behind it, but she also brought a lot of the the reasons why we behave the way we behave. And so as a, also a deeply feeling person, it was helpful for me to see, see the why behind the behavior and why behind some of my feelings and my responses to things, you know, being someone that struggles with perfectionism. um, One thing that she challenged me with understanding is that perfectionist 
strive for perfectionism to be perfect so that we can avoid criticism. It's not that we want to be perfect. We just don't want to be seen in a negative way. We, and that's where the shame comes in. And I was like, aha, it was like this big awakening moment to realize like, that's why I behave the way I behave. That's why I do it. Um, and it was really empowering to know that there are other ways to behave and there's other ways that I didn't have to give shame power that um, it's okay to fail and to embrace our imperfections. They, they bring connection with people. They bring um, no deep connection because they allow people to just be human. We're not created to be perfect and that's just not realistic. So that was um, a really encouraging book for me to read. And right after that, I just, read all of her stuff <laughs> so are, are her books kind of um written in kind of chapters are they written like stories how does she kind of share this teaching of you know it's okay to fail she does it in stories and also or antidotes and then um shares like some of the research so for instance in one of her books she shared about her working environment as being a manager and a part of her organization and how she wants people to be able to approach her and, you know, be, be able to say that how comfortable or uncomfortable they feel. And she was describing how they were going to launch a book and they were going really fast and she wanted to move faster, but her team felt very uncomfortable with it. And she had created an environment where they didn't feel that they could, you know, say that they were uncomfortable. And it was interesting to see how she learned from that experience and how um, her team has grown and learned from that experience. And also kind of, I feel like many of us have either been the person sitting at the table saying, I'm uncomfortable, or we've been the boss trying to move our team along and the team feels uncomfortable. So I feel like some of those antidotes that she brings in her own stories help you to really realize on a real level that these things are happening very, very frequently. And when you touched upon perfectionism, you know, that obviously we, we, we all strive for perfectionism. That's why we don't want to fail. That's why we don't want to be criticized. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you are less of a perfectionist now that you're creating art? Or do you feel like you did that more when you were engineering or you feel like you do it more now? Mm. That's tough. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think that I still struggle with perfectionism, but in different areas of my life. I think that when I was an engineer, it was more performative and outwardly because in engineering, everything is, um, every, most everything is, you know, measured. So mm -hmm. how you're, you're, project performs, how quickly you go to market, those things, they're all outward type of measurements. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was perfectionist on that. And I also wanted to please people. I wanted to make sure that I had that external affirmation of you're doing a great job. I think as I've shifted to be at home, my perfectionism is more internal. Like I want to be a, the perfect mom. I want to be the perfect spouse. I want to be a perfect business owner and, you know, represent myself well on social media. And I have to always check that need for perfectionism because that actually builds a wall and keeps people out because although I'm trying to prevent myself from being criticized and being um, seen as a failure, I'm also not letting other people see the humanity of me and so if they don't feel like they can see the humanity of who I am as a mom a spouse a business owner why would they want to engage in conversation with me or in relationship with me and that is the opposite of what I want for my business is I want it to feel like a welcome home um, I want it to be approachable and so I have to constantly wrestle with that desire to keep airs up keep the walls up and really just make myself vulnerable which is hard <laughs> I think it's hard no, for everyone <laughs> I, I totally agree I mean I think you know I, I, we're so inundated with like images of perfection mm -hmm. you know and I think 
with the social media, I, you know, I feel it for my daughter as well. I feel like, oh, when she gets older and this is what she's growing up into, it's really hard to be like perfect and like, and think that everybody is perfect because, you know, and then it brings out that envy and that perfectionism that, you know, you don't want, you want that same thing because you feel like that's what everyone expects of you. Yeah. But, you know, it, it shouldn't be that way. It should be, yeah, everyone has flaws. Everyone's, you know, I know I'm not a perfect mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that, you know, it's, that's all part of being a mom. Nobody has it perfect. You know, if everyone did, then, you know, somebody could sell it for millions of dollars. Yeah. But, <laughs> it, it is. It's, you know, I, I think for me, I don't feel like I'm a perfectionist in, when I'm a mother, I feel like I'm more of a perfectionist when it comes to, oh, I don't know. I, th- I feel like it's more what I want to present, like you say. You mm. know, you want to present well outwardly that you are perfect. Yeah. But then some parts of me, I'm kind of like, no, I shouldn't be, I should embrace the fact that I'm not perfect, you know, because that's what makes us all unique. And, you know, that kind of ties in with your, you know, I think your slogan for your business, you know, unique. Um, mm. And, I think that it's really powerful because that's how, yeah, like you said, you make yourself vulnerable and then you can connect with people on a different level. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you brought up the, um, the slogan or the, like the motto for my business, because as I was like starting to look at flowers and research them and just like look at pictures to draw flowers, I started to realize that there's so much imperfection in nature that we don't, give a second thought to like a rip in a leaf or a a wrinkle in a petal like it doesn't take away from the beauty of the plant or the flower the overall you know the aura of the botanical is still beautiful and it was just like such a reminder like it was like the wake-up call of like hey you are still beautiful in your imperfection you are still perfect in your in your imperfection you are still enough in this imperfection. And so I always have to remind myself of that, that nature is imperfect, but we are still in awe of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's just such a good representation for each one of us. So Christy, what is your next book? So the next book that has made me would be Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And that really ties into what we're just talking about, the idea of perfection and how it ties into my artwork. Because I was, um, as you know, I'm trying to wrestle with perfectionism and I'm starting a business, I have was always overthinking things and, you know, overanalyzing before I would actually try something. Because again, the, that mentality of, you know, it has to be done right when I launch it was always getting in the way. And then I read this book by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, And there was a piece in the book that has still stuck out to me. And it just talks about how, you know, creativity is looking for a willing vessel. There's all these creative ideas and, you know, kind of in the atmosphere and they're looking for willing participants to kind of harvest the idea. And if we come and we have this idea of something to do creatively, and we dismiss it or we take too long, that idea will look for another willing vessel. And it's so interesting because I've actually seen it happen multiple times in my business and just creatively where I've thought of something that I wanted to do or thought of something that would be really cool and I just sat on it or I needed to actually think through the perfect way of doing it. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, within a week or two after that, I would open Instagram or, you know, hear someone talking about it. And they're like, Oh, I just have this awesome new piece, or this is what I'm sharing. And I'd be like, Oh, my goodness, that is, that is exactly what I was thinking about doing. And I'm always reminded by this book that creativity will find its way to be expressed out in the world. If we just wait, if we are willing and if we're engaged in participating. And so I think that's pretty, I think it's cool to think of that. It's, it's very different than the whole science and engineering perspective that I've grown up learning about. Um, but I think it's a good reminder that we can all be willing participants for creativity in any aspect. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just, we need to be willing. Mm-hmm. I, when you said that, it reminded me exactly of what you, what I was going to, one of the talking points I wanted to make was, um, it was, it's funny that you said, you know, 
being a willing vessel and I'd never really considered it like that before I think I just always thought oh you know creative ideas just come to people Mm -hmm. and then they kind of let it out but then I think like you said your perfectionism your you know you wanted to it kind of stopped you creatively. Yeah. Um, so when these ideas come to you and the ones that you d- dismiss in the past, mm-hmm. how do they usually shape for you? Like, how do they come to your, like, how do they come to your mind? Like, do they come, like, you wake up in the morning? Do, does it happen when you're, like, um, in the middle of creating something and you're like, aha, I can apply this to this? Yeah, I think it's the latter. It's I'm creating something and I'm like, oh, wow, I could... I could do this. So for instance, one of the, the ideas that came to me and then vanished to someone else was I had just started doing custom pieces and I thought, you know, I can do custom bouquets. I can do someone's wedding bouquet and then they would have this physical tangible piece to take home or to keep after their wedding and after the bouquet has perished. And I was doing it. And then someone that I was friends or followed on Instagram not even a week later was showing these custom artwork pieces that she was doing for brides and I'm not I don't want it to sound like there isn't enough space for everyone to do these things it was just very interesting to me that the idea had come to me I had dismissed it or I was busy on something else and then the idea came to came to her as a willing vessel she actually followed through with it um, so it was just it was a good reminder like hey it'll find someone else if you if you don't want to sit with it mm-hmm. yeah. so I mean I'm reading a little bit about kind of like um, philosophy kind of um, things like intuitive nudges and things like mm-hmm. that uh, and spiritual uh, spirituality and I don't know do you kind of tap into that because sometimes I feel like I've for creative things I feel like they have to they have to be my idea Mm. I, I, you know, a lot of the times I don't feel like things just kind of come to me. Whereas I feel like this podcast, it kind of just kind of came to me. And when it came into realization, I was like, oh, this is always something that I should have done. But then mm. you like, you always think, oh, is there enough space for me? Yeah. But then I, if you, I think if you want to do it, you take that intuitive nudge and then you, you, you run with it, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think it, I have always been a spiritual person. I've grown up in the church um, with a Christian background, but I think in the last few years I've been, you know, expanding my belief system and exploring, you know, what that looks like in different venues and different areas. Um, for me, I feel the most spiritually connected through music. I feel like it's a, a form of worship and connectivity with both myself and, you know, the universe and the creator. So regardless of what that music is from and who is making it, I just feel very connected in that. And so that's usually where I'm creating is with the music on where I'm singing. I, I grew up singing in church and in, in school. So I'm usually singing and drawing and sketching. And the process happens over a course of a couple of weeks. It's not something where I sit down and I'm like, this is what I'm going to create in the end game. You know, hours later, I'm done with it. It's usually something where it's a series of sessions of those very intimate moments where I'm sketching or I'm writing affirmations. And in the case of my affirmation deck, it was a long season of depression that I created these pieces and I created um, pieces of artwork and affirmations that I needed in that moment. And at the end of that season, I was like, this is what I need. I need it. So someone else will benefit from it as well and that's how a lot of my pieces happen is just creating pieces that I know I need for that specific moment that specific season of my life um and then knowing that if it if I need it someone else that is going through a similar journey and could use it as well so do you often go back to your deck or do you just kind of you, you've, you've had those affirmations, you've used them when you needed them and then just kind of let them go. Oh, I have them sitting out um, in the house and I usually, and they're in my, my plant room, which is where I usually am hanging out and the kids are doing crafts and I'm drawing. And I usually will go to them. Like if I'm having a rough day, I'll just, you know, flip it over. And I know that 
the words that I need to hear will be there. That that will be, it's like when someone texts you that they were thinking of you and they say some encouraging words, that's the way that the universe uses someone to tell you what you need to hear. Or if you open a book and you land on the page or that, that chapter is something that is exactly what you need to hear. I think that my affirmation deck is a way for that for me and a way for other people to hear the words that they need in that exact moment. So sometimes I use them as journal prompts. Sometimes I just like to leaf through them. And if I'm having lots of feelings and I don't know exactly what those feelings are saying, sometimes I'll just rifle through the deck and then it's like, ah, you know, my feelings are valid. That's what I needed to hear. I don't know what they are, but my feelings are valid. And I'll just, you know, keep that out and keep coming through it as I walk around the house throughout the day. Oh, that's pretty powerful. I mean, I think for me, it's because I've only just recently kind of looked into kind of spirituality. I think for me, it's always been, you know, you get your answers from what you, you know, what you ask or whatever, mm -hmm. but then I haven't, for me, I feel recently like getting those kind of, like you say, you know, you open up the deck and it's the words that you need to hear, you know, um, you open up a book and that's what you need to see right then. And I, I feel like I feel that more now, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's the age thing. I don't know if that's more because I'm more connected now to, um, you know, being cut off from everything because of the quarantine period. I don't know if I'm more connected with myself. Yeah. So I think that's really powerful what you were saying. Yeah. I so, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to go on to the next book, but if you had something else to add, go for it. No, that's great. Um, so the other book that you were saying, which I thought we were going to start with, but that's fine, um, is a book that was named after you. Um, oh, yeah. And I had never read this book. Yeah, so you said, like, oh, there's no way that I can talk about the books that made me without talking about the books that my book that my mum named me um, after. And I was just wondering, because my name's Wendy, so, you know, as soon as people hear my name, Wendy, they're like, oh, Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure everyone thinks of that. And I, I can't think of another book or, you know, another kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, what, some kind of connection to the, the name Wendy anywhere else. So then I think when people hear that name, mm. do they think that, oh, you know, Wendy Darling, she was, you know, she cared for her kids. She was very patient. She was very loving, you know. <laughs> do you feel like you have to live up to your namesake because of this book, Christy? Yeah. So my name, um, my mom named me after the book Christy by Catherine Marshall. And the book is about a missionary to, I believe it's like the Appalachian or to the mountains. And my mom was an avid reader. And when she read that, she was like, my, one of my child, children will be named Christy. And me being the firstborn, I got the name. So I think growing up in a, growing up in a Christian school, in the church, in a Christian college, I do feel like I had to live up to the name. Um, I think that there was a lot of perfectionism around that as well as, you know, there's an expectation in the church, um, a way, you, a lifestyle, a way you live. Um, and then I think I, I would say that I've found a lot of freedom in these last few years in exploring my spirituality and what that means um, to kind of release that, uh, that, you know, hold on what is expected of me in all areas of my life. Um, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, she was, she found connection with this character in a book and she found um, you know, just a kinship with this character and wanted her child to be named after this character. So I think it's pretty cool that, you know, she was an avid reader and she passed that on to all of us. So do you think it was more that she related to the character more? That's why she wanted to name her Christy or because she wanted you to be like Christy? Because, I mean, mm. I looked at this and it was, you know, I think the, the main part of it was that she... She, it was all about courage and determination and passion. And I feel like you have those things. So I don't know if she... Thank you. No, because I think, you know, you, it's courage to change, you know, change your job and take, um, take leave from your job and be a stay-at-home mom. Um, you know, it takes determination to set up a new business. And I think it's passion. You know, passion shows that you, you're creating things that you want to create, you know? So I, I don't know if she named you almost knowing that 
this Christy in the book who was passionate, who was determined and courageous, and she wanted that for you, or if she, or she just was like, oh, I really like this character for me. Mm. I don't. Have you ever had a conversation with her about it, or? No, that's so that's so interesting. Now I'm I'm gonna see her later on this week. I'm gonna ask her about that. <laughs> that um, I never thought of it that way, and I never I always associated it with you know the faith based part and not oh. the character, the characteristics of the main character. But I'm so grateful that you have you brought that up and brought that the fact that you see that in me and that that care those characteristics are alive and well and uh-huh. um I, I i never thought of it that way thank you that's a, such a <laughs> gift <laughs> you're welcome um yeah because i think i don't know i i think we all find i i feel like for me when i read a book i don't think i would name my daughter after um mm. even though she's named after a shakespearean character but it wasn't mm. because of the book like, because i just like the name um mm. I don't know if I would name my child a character because I feel like I, ha- I don't feel like I've been burdened with the name Wendy, but it's always Wendy from Peter Pan. So it's yeah. like, you know, so I just I wonder if, you know, I wonder that process. I know that I wouldn't. But naming your children, did you use characters from books to help you come up with their names? No. Oh, OK. <laughs> I think for us, it was we were trying to find names that we didn't know anyone who had the name like mm-hmm. from high school or in our families or someone had already named their kids that and we wanted names that could grow with them so for I was actually I'm actually Christina and shortened to Christy and I liked oh. that I had a bigger name and that could shorten it my husband also has the same thing so my children have long full like full names <laughs> and then they can always shorten it to whatever a nickname so that was only. I, I never felt like Wendy could ever be shortened to anything. No. Like it always, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you know, your name's your name, and you kind of you, you learn to like you say you grow with it. You know, you yeah. end up being you know your own person with that name. Um, so I mean, t- turning back to the book, um, yeah, there were some themes in the book. Um, you know, it was it was set during kind of like the turbulent times of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. Um, And it was about her wanting to make a difference to these, you know, these impoverished children. Mm. Um, Do you feel that's what your art does during these kind of times? Do you think your art kind of is making a difference or you want to make a difference in someone's life through your art? I mean, I know you talked about the affirmations and everything Mm. like that, but is there anything else like a bigger picture that you have for your art? I wish I could say I had a big picture as to what, my art and what my business will be I think I kind of let go of that when um, my big plans for my career my engineering career like pivoted that I just was giving myself permission for whatever this is going to be if this is going to be two years and that's all it was meant to be then that was going to be okay so I'm really just going with the flow however I do feel like I have an opportunity to speak life and speak truth into this current season that I'm in. And so that's really what I am. That's really part of my goal is, especially with the turbulence of our current um, climate, both with the pandemic and with, um, you know, the movement against racism and for racial justice. As a black woman, I feel like I have a responsibility to to speak now and especially as a black woman who has navigated and lived in predominantly white spaces um, I'm feeling very called to speak and to speak life to black women that are also in predominantly white spaces but also to to just encourage the people that I have lived life with that may not know that are claiming that they don't know or have claimed that they don't see color or have done things unintentionally throughout my life, whether it's word or deed that have actually hurt me. Um, that rather than being silent and being small and being palatable, that now is my time and my responsibility through my artwork um, 
the artwork is what draws people in to say, oh, this is interesting. But then they stay for the conversation and they stay for what we're, we're talking about. And that's kind of what I feel right now it's about. And that may shift. And I, I'm okay with that. Because I noticed on your Instagram recently, you've put on some, um, there's some famous uh, black Americans. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're just Americans, um, but they have like your floral I suppose etchings on them or I don't know how you you know I'm not sure how you produce it creatively um is that your way of kind of speaking out through your art yeah so when I left when I left work it was this huge shift in all areas of my life um I had straightened my hair for 20 plus years and chemically straightened blow dried and I felt like I needed to adhere to these traditional standards of what women's hair should look like. And there was a big movement as far as embracing naturally curly hair at that time that I left my job. And I just cut my hair off and started from scratch to embrace my naturally curly hair. And as I was having that um, personal identity birth, rebirth, um, mm-hmm. I had this vision of women's hair in history and how there is no good or bad. And I just kept seeing these floral botanical crowns that would embody their hair. And right around that time, I was starting to process my identity as a black woman. And a lot of it had been repressed because growing up in the United States, we don't learn about the full depth and breadth of our history. We learned about kind of a, a, you know, a, an innocent a piecemeal yeah uh, it, it's just it's not what they want you to know exactly than- yes exactly and so I took it upon myself to like I really wanted to understand and research and so it was coming to Black History Month and I just really felt you know that creative wash on me of I'm gonna I'm going to look for these pictures for these Black women in American history and I'm going to draw flowers in their hair and I'm going to share what I have learned about their contribution to our history, being pioneers, being the first, being contributors, being role models. And the first year I did it, I reached out to people that were friends or followers that were black women and asked them to tell me who who inspired them? And I specifically went after those four quotes and four pictures. And it was a way to embrace the community that I had online and also give give a platform and amplify these voices of women, um, both right now in the current climate, women that have these inspiring people in their life, and also the heroes that are in our history, both current I mean, there's Tracy Ellis Ross is one of the people that I, I've done the flowers in her hair. Ava DuVernay is also another one, but also Sojourner Truth and Mamie Clark Phipps. People in our history that may not be as well known. This was a way for me to bring bring them to the forefront through my artwork and creating these pieces. And now it's now when you say that it was about the hair and mm-hmm. I, I totally see it now. Like before I just thought it was, you know, kind of, showcasing these these famous women Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that you know it was about the hair and now that I know about the hair it just gives it that extra Mm. I don't know that extra understanding of where that art comes from so now I really appreciate you explaining that that's you know it makes me look at it very differently now um (laughs) but I think it really ties in quickly what you said about um being in white spaces Mm -hmm. and your your next three books are very much about kind of this awakening Mm -hmm. that you had um through black writers giving you you know, giving you the the understanding, the background that you needed, you know, to be able to speak out. Um, yeah. Am I right in saying that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just want to get that right. <laughs> um, but um, so, I mean, I think for me, the next book I would quickly touch on with you would be The the Small Great Things, mm-hmm. the Jodie Colt book. Um, and you being in a white space, um, the character as well, she goes she experiences a lot of microaggressions um, and I've only recently kind of learned about microaggressions um, through you know educating myself through reading but what kind of microaggressions did you kind of come across when you were uh, in these white spaces? Um, so I am also I think this was the first book that I started to really realize that 
microaggressions were a thing and that not just me taking things personally. So that was like a real awakening um, for me. Some of the microaggressions that the character experienced and that I've also experienced were, you know, going to shopping centers and having people follow you. I remember growing up and my going to a shopping center locally and people following my dad and I, we weren't being suspicious. We weren't doing anything. We were just grocery shopping and someone was following us. Um, I've also, I'm very aware of where my hands are when I'm in the store, making sure I'm not going in and out of my purse, making sure that if my cell phone is out, it's out, it's on my purse. My bag isn't open. Um, my hands aren't going in and out of my pockets. I don't want to give anyone cause to think about that. Um, with my hair, people commenting on, I've had, you know, a medical professional comment, wow, your hair is so big, you probably don't need a pillow for it. And mm. not knowing how to respond to that, like, oh, okay. Um, another one would be, you know, when it's crazy hair day at school or camp, and people are wearing afros, showing that, right. you know, that's, that's crazy hair, apparently to them, but that's my natural hair. Um, and I don't really appreciate when it's considered crazy hair. But those are just a few of um, the ones that I've experienced. And some of the ones that she's experienced specifically were in the shopping center. And that was like a real aha moment for me because I've had that. I've had that happen. Um, and it's humbling. It's an embarrassing. It's mortifying. Um mm -hmm because you realize that it's not you it's, it's yeah yeah no matter what I could I'm not I could do the best that I am at making sure that I'm not being suspicious and it's the color of my skin that's making me suspicious so did you feel like it it sounds like it was mostly out in um kind of out in the, the community rather than at work that you felt most of these microaggressions because I, I mean I haven't read this book so I don't know if a lot of the microaggressions were just at work or just in the community so, so at work um, my microaggressions were compounded with the fact that I was the only female in my my group in most of the spaces so I was in manufacturing engineering which is predominantly male predominantly white um, and so me being and also most of my peers were older than me so it's like multi-layered for work. <laughs> um, I remember multiple times um, being asked to take notes in meetings, um, being asked to make copies and set up meetings. Um, meanwhile, I would have the highest level of education in the room, but I was doing the menial tasks. Right. Um, and I, I'm, not naive enough to say that that's just race based. I believe that's it's multi, it's the intersections of my identity that put me in that position, or and that allowed these individuals to um, take advantage of me in those, those positions. Um, but those were some of the ones at work, making sure that I had to dress dress a certain way. I think that's a real um, microaggression or. It's called a, it's called respectability politics, and it's making sure that you dress a certain way to be come off as respectable, right, and to be treated with respect. And I notice that as I'm going to the bank to open a loan or open an account for my business, I don't just wear chill clothes or active wear. I make sure that I'm dressed in business casual clothes, and where a lot of times my white friends may not think about those things. I am very mindful when I'm going to buy jewelry, making sure that I'm dressed up a little bit more because I know that those are subconscious biases that people will treat me a certain way if I'm not dressed a certain way. So in terms of the book, you said that you could, you could finally see yourself mm. as, the as a character in a book. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that's the same today I mean I guess when you were growing up because I always felt that I never I was never represented being Asian I was never represented in books like I read you know your Sweet Valley Highs your yeah. Goosebumps and it was you know it was I guess I never really thought about it but it was mm -hmm. never 
Asian characters. It was never an Asian main character or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never really considered that. But today now, I mean, I feel today there are a lot more. Yeah. But when you were growing up, did you feel, I mean, was this re- truly like the first time you held a book and was like, there's actually a black character in this and I can identify with everything in this? Yeah, I grew up reading the same type, Nancy Drew, Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High. Um, the TV shows I watched were, you know, predominant, they're Saved by the Bell. <laughs> so there weren't a lot of characters that looked like me. Um, I think what was specific about this one was that as I was becoming more aware of what it means to occupy space as a Black woman, I could see that the main character was also doing that too. She was wrestling with um, with people actually seeing her as a black woman, and regardless of her skill and her her education, not wanting her to be present in the room or work with them purely on the the color of their skin. And then the institution that she worked in, not wanting to rock the boat and support her because of the color of her skin. And then seeing her sister wrestling with, um, you know, being very vocal and loud about being black and proud of it. And then the main character being like very torn between do I be loud and vocal and potentially alienate people? Or do I sit in these spaces where I'm meant to be small and palatable and not free to be me? And I could just see her wrestling. And this was the first book that I actually saw that wrestling that I was experiencing in real life that the character Mm -hmm. was experiencing. And it just, it literally was the first book that I saw myself in. And that's crazy. Late into your, you know, way past your teens, right? So it's all for that. You, you know, you you can only identify with the character way later into your life. Um, But I wonder because it's written by a white author, were you kind of put off by that? Or do you think she did the book justice? Or the character justice? I think that's really interesting. I think at the time I was, I was proud that the conversation had even been started, that the author being white had used her platform as having a very wide audience and having you know, published a lot of books that she was bringing this conversation to the table. Now, I think three or four years later, um, I'm not sure if I would say the same thing because I do believe that as a white woman, she really couldn't speak to the depth of what a black woman experiences. And I do think that we need to be very careful about that. Um, So when authors write books, they should write from their experiences. And when we read books about people's experiences, we should be mindful about who the authors are and that they can only give a certain level of depth to a book if it's not their personal lived experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think who I was and what season I was in, I needed that book. And I'm Mm -hmm. grateful for Jodi Picoult for using her platform to write it. Um, I think now, as I'm still learning and digging, I'm just more mindful of which books, which authors, and keeping that in mind when I'm reading them. No, I think that's, you know, that's right. I think when you first see it, I think there was this big controversy with the book American Dirt and about how, you know, it was meant to be this this, this great book. And I read the book and I thought it was great, but I didn't realize that, you know, it was written by a white woman who hadn't lived that experience. Mm. So how could it be, you know, was she was it performative that she was just using this book as a way to get, you know, to, to yeah. people to buy her book or was, you know, or was she trying truly to try and put light into the experience of these, you know, immigrants trying to cross the border. So it was, you know, you saying that and, you know, thinking about that, I'm just like, yeah, we definitely need voices that are, you know, people of color, mm-hmm. but then to have those lived experiences because, you can't explain, you can't, you don't have that, like you said, that depth of understanding until you have lived that experience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which I think that goes right into like the next book mm-hmm. that has played a huge part in my journey is I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown, who is a Black woman. And she shared mm-hmm. her experience about navigating white spaces and growing up in a white world. And 
I believe the difference in the time frame of me reading those two books was maybe two years. And I think that they came at the, the exact time I needed to read them because reading Austin Channing's, Channing Brown's book just kind of gave more words to the feelings that I had felt during reading Small Great Things. Mm-hmm. So she gave me a vocabulary to explain the why behind it and understand some of the systemic racism behind it and some of the history behind it. And um, it just helped me to trust myself more. So a lot of those feelings that I, I felt like I needed science behind with the Brene Brown book, I feel like these books have helped me understand that the voice that I'm hearing inside, I can trust her, that those mm-hmm. thoughts that I have, I can trust her. Um, and that I'm not crazy, I'm not wild, I'm not being oversensitive, that these things are actually happening and I can be aware of them and I can give voice to them in spaces that I'm in. And whether it's just saying, no, I don't feel comfortable with you saying that or, hey, let's read a book that's by an author that's lived this experience that I, I can trust myself to say those things. So where did you discover this book? Was it kind of word of mouth? Did you just kind of pick it up one day? Did somebody recommend it to you? I think I heard about it from a podcast by Jen Hatmaker. She was doing some podcasts with people. And at the time I was listening to that podcast pretty regularly. I believe that's who I heard it from. Um, Or it could have been some people I was following on Instagram that's Um, I respected and trusted what they were saying in books they were recommending, but I'm pretty sure it was Jen Hatmaker. Okay. So what do you think that was going back right back to big magic? Was this come like this intuitive nudge that you got like, Oh, this is kind of something that you should be reading. Or was it like, Oh, I'm searching for something to, to kind of put words to my feelings. And then you found that book. I would say it was the latter. I think it was at this point in time, me leaving work, I had this available capacity to read that I didn't have while I was working. And I was in this searching mentality of, you know, unlearning things that I had preconceived notions about from a a societal norm standpoint, religious norms my identity as a black woman. And I was literally like looking for every type of media I could consume to learn and research things. And so when the book was presented to me, whether through the podcast or online, I was like, oh yeah, I need that book. I need to read it. I need to to fill up um, and understand better what I'm going through and what I'm experiencing. I think you mentioned... Um you said that you felt like you were the only one that you thought you were the only one that felt like this Mm -hmm. before reading the book. Had you talked to people, you know, um, people of color about what you were feeling or was it, you were just kind of, this is kind of what it is in this workplace. This is is kind of what it is in this uh, shopping center. Yeah. I am the oldest of three girls and my sisters and I don't, we hadn't really talked about this much, but we have both, been we had all three navigated the same spaces we went to the same schools same colleges same um you know same church so we had been navigating these spaces in a way that you know the previous generation had taught us which was kind of you know assimilate survival Mm -hmm. even um that you know that worked for them our churches and our schools were predominantly white. So our exposure was very limited. We were, uh, just speaking for me, I've been the token in most spaces. So there haven't been other black women for me to speak with, black men to speak with. And there was this sort of thought process of, we have done enough to get to this space, like work hard, you, you can get the jobs, work make money you can get the houses it's that whole thought of grit that Mm -hmm. really doesn't take into consideration the idea that systems are broken and systems are created to hold people back 
specifically people of color. Um, so as I was learning, I was intentionally seeking out those women and men that were speaking on their experiences, speaking on systemic racism, um, bias, unconscious and conscious bias. I'm really trying to take that out of myself because I think there's this thought process that um, black people can't be racist or you know people of color can't be racist, but we forget that our, our culture was created with racism built into it. It's the air we breathe and we're swimming in it. So unless we are consciously working at, you know, scooping that water out of the boat, it will drown us. And when I came to that realization, and I, I came to that realization through that book by Ibram Kendi, that mm -hmm. I can be racist and that I need to actively work at being anti-racist. Um, that it has become something that I am continually working on as a mom, um, as a parent, and as a part of a classroom, as a spouse, um, and just as a contributor to the society. It's like, we have to work at this. This isn't a check the box. Um, this isn't a level to be achieved. This is, this is ongoing life work. Yeah, it's so right that you say that. I mean, you say, you know, we have these biases that we, we grow up with and we don't even know we have them. And yeah. it's funny, you know, leading into, you know, the anti-racist book, I think as soon as you hear the anti-racist, you immediately think, oh, it's got to be against, you know, racist against black people. But it's it's all of us. We're all yeah. racist in some way. And it's, it's so important that you say that, you know, that black people can have biases too. You know, mm -hmm. I have biases as an Asian person. I, you know, white, I, my husband's white and I'm sure he has biases against whoever, whomever. Um, and but then, like you say, it's, it's this learning process that you have to unlearn all of these biases and mm -hmm. understand that where they all come from in order to kind of become, you know, become anti-racist. And it is yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're in a, a time period of social media, which allows us to have community with so many people going through the same journey, which is a beautiful thing about social media is we can connect with people across the world, across the country that are on the same journey of self-discovery and learning and anti-racism. And I, I am indebted to the people that I've encountered through social media because they've really made space for me and helped me in these last four years to, you know, question a lot of the things and, giving me resources to find the answers and I'm still I'm still learning I'm still unlearning but I'm grateful to be on the journey mm -hmm. no I think it's great that you say that you're, that you're still learning because mm -hmm. I think I think people think assume that because if you're a person of color then you there is no learning to be done but there is so much learning mm -hmm. for everybody mm -hmm. you know and I think you know I haven't had the opportunity to read the anti-racist book yet and I, I want to it's definitely on my wish list um but it's, it's, yeah, I think it's so important that you say that it's, we, ha we all have to unlearn everything. We have to, it's so, you know, it's, there's a lot of work to be done. But like you say, social media is a way to connect um, with other people. And I, I'm so glad that I was able to connect with you. Um, Likewise. I remember uh, there was a podcast, Brené Brown's podcast. I was listening to her interview with, with Ibrahim. And I think mm. the important he said I what I really took away from that was he said that you know everybody has the capacity to change and mm. I think that's so true you know it's just knowing that you can change it's knowing that whatever rigid thoughts you have that you do have the capacity to change it's just about unlearning it all and it's about just educating yourself and speaking to people and speaking out to people you know so mm -hmm. I, it's so important yeah it, we're in such a, a great time I think for for this to be happening because it is it's like an awakening you know yeah yeah it's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, coming onto the show today. Um, I really, really appreciate it. I'm so happy that you were able to share all these books. Um, I hope that you took something away from it too. Um, yeah. But where can people get a hold of you or contact you or find your work? Uh, the best place to get a hold of me and join the community would be uh, the House of Roushi on Instagram. It's the period, house period, of period, <laughs> Roushi. <laughs> so there's a lot of periods. Was that just 
making it difficult for people. <laughs> yeah. Not thinking at the beginning, just trying to get what I, <laughs> what I wanted it to be. Um, or thehouseofrashi.com. So you can always okay. find me there and connect with, with us there. So um, I'm excited to meet people. I love chatting in the DMs and I, I'm, I'm just an imperfect person sharing the things I'm learning on this journey of becoming. Thank you so much for listening. And if you love this episode, let me know in the comments or you can email me at thebtmm at gmail.com. If you have a guest in mind or if you'd like to be featured, then drop me an email at the same address. That's thebtmm at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at thebtmm where you'll find out what books I'm reading, my hashtag challenges and next week's guests. See you then.